Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday. Time for the AMA. That's the Ask Me Anything, where I respond to your questions and comments. We go through it together, and we have a discussion. Now, there are a lot of things to discuss about the Long Island serial killer, the Zodiac killer, and all things true crime and beyond. But first, I have just a couple of quick announcements. First, I would like to give a shout-out to the channel Oak Leaves and Onions. This is one that I discovered recently, and I was talking about a channel recently that was called Barehanded Enterprises, and there were a couple commonalities among the two, and I just wanted to share somebody else's channel, something that I thought was pretty good. I started watching the channel Oak Leaves and Onions on YouTube because the host of it, I don't know her name, I think she does it um, anonymously, she did it a response to the book The Rational Male by Rolo Tomasi, one that I've mentioned on these AMAs once or twice, and I mostly just wanted to hear that, and I also saw that she responded to No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover, and I've mentioned just a little bit of him here on this channel, too, but it just promoting someone else's stuff, an invitation to listen to something different. Barehanded Enterprises was hosted by Buland Gherkin, and it's more about life coaching, motivational speaking, covering things like diet and fitness, and all things associated with daily life. And Oak Leaves and Onions is um, a channel that isn't quite life coaching. I mean, I wouldn't say that it is. Instead, I think it's more about stories of personal experience, and especially if you watch her things that are about um, her own real-life experiences as opposed to the uh, book reviews and book responses that she does. One more time, Oak Leaves and Onions. If you just like hearing uh, people's uh, take on subjects or just the way that they live their lives and the lessons that they learn from them, I would recommend you check out her channel. Now, on to today's episode. I would like to remind you guys that you can always download this show for free at Launchpad One. That's the user-generated affiliate of Podcast One. There's a link to that in the description box. Same name, Black Box Online Radio, but the link is in the description box. That's the easiest way to get there. And there are going to be a few things coming out on the Launchpad One page that are like the first cut, first drafts of the episodes. I used to just edit these things and put them out on YouTube, but then I decided... I'll just put out the um, episode that doesn't make it onto YouTube on Launchpad 1, and that's like the audio. You can download the audio as a pure podcast, take it on the go anywhere and anyhow, and it's really one of the best ways to help out the channel, to support Black Box Online Radio. Just listen to some more content. Using Launchpad 1 is a great way to do that. Another way you can support the channel absolutely for free is to go over to Astro Psych 400 on YouTube. It's another thing that I've done. It's a 12-part series on astrology. Talking about the Zodiac Killer a lot got me very curious about astrology and star signs and personality traits. Astro Psych 400 available here on YouTube. And of course, there's a link to the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan, in the description box. That It is a novel, murder mystery, but it was definitely inspired by some real-life events that took place. And if you're curious about that, after the episode, you can visit the Amazon page. And as always, there is the Teespring page. Have a Feel free to have a look at some of the merchandise there. Almost all sizes and colors are listed for the t-shirts. And remember, being weird is not a crime. But I was messing around on the Teespring page a little bit last week, and I saw that you can turn almost anything into a Teespring item. And I mean that almost... 
absolutely anything. You can put like BBOR on anything, whether it's a shot glass or some type of winter hat. So I didn't go too crazy, but there's some things now like coffee mugs that also have BBOR written on them, and you'll see them bouncing around here from time to time, as well as some of the other graphics, whether it's the novel or the Astro Psych 400 imagery. But yes, there are now even coffee mugs and such. I love coffee. I absolutely do. And I drink tea every night. After 6 p.m., I switch from coffee to tea, and I just, I'm downing it nonstop. So why not down it in a BBOR mug? I'm going to get one as soon as I can. Why not? I mean, but to get to today's material, first I would like to begin with something about the Zodiac Killer. I appeared on the Professor Dad channel with Thomas Henry Hoare and Andrew Beeson, and we had a discussion mostly talking about the Bates Had to Die letters that were recently proven to be a hoax, a prank. It was a sick joke that had been concocted by a teenager. To provide some context, in 1966, somebody, well, I should say 1966, Sherry Joe Bates was murdered. In 1967, somebody wrote in a set of three letters saying Bates Had to Die, There Will Be More, and it's signed with what appears to be a Z with a little bit of a squiggle in it. Anyway, that person has been identified through DNA. They took touch DNA from the stamp that he had used to confess this, and he admitted to this in, 19, in uh, 2016, actually. Some guy was getting older in life. He wrote a, an admission of guilt. Hey, I wrote those letters back when I was a teenager in 1967. It was just a prank. It was just a sick joke. I was a teenager at the time. I wanted attention. And then they took the touch DNA from the uh, envelope that he had used, and then they matched it to DNA that had been uh, extracted from the letters, and it seemed like it was a match. They found the guy, they checked him out, he is not the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates, and he is not the Zodiac Killer. But we also got into some other things about um, just the case in general, and one thing that I did was I went around and I asked people if they would provide some challenge questions for Drew Beeson and Thomas Henry Horan, and Mike Morford sent in this, and if you want to hear the um, Professor Dad episode where I appear with Drew Beeson and Thomas Horn, you can, and you can hear these guys responding to these questions, but I wanted to give it a try as well. And the first uh, comment from Mike Morford of ZodiacKillerSite.com is, I wish that I could think of something to bring up with Thomas Henry Horn, but I hate to even give him any attention. The one thing I would ask him is why he thinks the Zodiac was hoaxed by one person. Hal Snook of memory, then Hal Snook would have had to have had access to multiple agencies in multiple jurisdictions and access to evidence, including Paul Stein's shirt. Ask him how a hoaxer like Hal Snook would have had access to the SFPD evidence, especially when the autopsy that occurred after the murder of Paul Stein was likely conducted prior to SFPD finding out that Paul Stein was a Zodiac victim. And in case this is the um, first episode you've clicked on where you've ever heard me talk about the hoax theory, it's the theory that somebody was writing letters taking credit for murders that he did not commit. There was no Zodiac killer, and that's why there are all these differences in the crimes. Somebody was ad admitting to murders that he had no part in, and instead it's more like um, obstruction of justice in some way, making the police, the authorities, the general public, the world, think that there's a single serial killer going around and murdering people, 
but real murders are taking place, it's just a different person is taking credit for it, and Thomas Henry Horne claims that he has identified that letter writer as none other than Hal Snook, as you heard in Morse's message. I would actually like to respond to this, and you can hear Thomas Horan's uh, answer on Professor Dad, but what I would do is I would say that it is not true that Hal Snook is the only person that is involved in the Zodiac hoax. Instead, um, I think Evan from Texas may have had one line in one of his Zodiac hoax videos about how this was all done by one person, Hal Snook. Instead, there are actually numerous people who are involved with the hoax theory, and that's one thing that it relies on. Active participants. It's not just Hal Snook working by himself, perhaps writing some of the letters. But the interesting thing is, Thomas Horne only accuses Hal Snook of designing the Zodiac correspondences before November 9th of 1969. Then he says other people, other active participants, particularly the author of the Melvin Belli letter, were working with him. How did he obtain um, evidence such as the uh, pieces of the bloody shirt if it's a Zodiac hoax? Interdepartmental, um, multiple jurisdictions going on, multiple agencies, active participants. I mean, I'm just somebody who has read the book, The Myth of the Zodiac Killer, and that's what I would say. But Mike Morford also has something for Drew Beeson, and you can hear Drew's response on that episode as well. Once again, it's about the Bates Had to Die Letters Will Be a Hoax. That's in the title on Professor Dad. And Mike Morford wants to say something about Don Chaney as a Zodiac suspect. Drew Beeson is the author of the book Citing In on the Zodiac Killer, and his suspect is Don Chaney, who was the former friend of Arthur Lee Allen. He's mentioned frequently in the writings of Robert Graysmith, and Drew Beeson um, has Don as his prime suspect. But the odd thing is, there is a possibility that Arthur Lee Allen molested Don Chaney's daughter, and Morph's statement is, I don't really have much thought on Don Chaney other than to say, if allegations against Arthur Lee Allen of molesting Don Chaney's daughter are true, he has a motive to lie. Now, you can read the book citing in on the Zodiac Killer, and you'll get a response that is very similar to what I genuinely believe, not playing the different sides of the issue, not exploring anything here, just telling you what I genuinely believe. I do not think that those allegations are true. I do not believe that Don Chaney's daughter was ever molested by Arthur Lee Allen. I think it's something that Don Chaney concocted himself. It's a false story. And Drew Beeson is much better at articulating this stuff than I am. If you ever go over to his uh, show, The Zodcast, here on YouTube, because he's the expert on Don. But it's like... Don Chaney maintained a friendship with Arthur Lee Allen after the molestation would have taken place for at least six months. Arthur Lee Allen was also known to target people that were much older than Don Chaney's daughter would have been. She was born in 1963, and this um, molestation occurred in 1967. She would have been three, three and a half, four years old. Arthur Lee Allen was never known to have targeted a girl that young, older than that, of course, but... I mean, Arthur Lee Allen was a sex offender, pedophile, all of that, but the fact that Don Chaney maintains the friendship, and let's not kid ourselves, people think that this is true because they believe that Arthur Lee Allen was um, being vilified by Don Chaney. They think that Don wanted to get revenge on Arthur Lee Allen, and it's a narrative that has been established throughout the Zodiac writings over the last 30 years, that Don Chaney wanted to vilify Arthur Lee Allen because 
Alan had molested his daughter. Well, if that were true, there are so many better ways to get revenge. How about doing it honestly? If Arthur Lee Allen actually did something wrong, Don Chaney could have called the cops. He could have had him arrested. He could have put him in jail. He could have just beaten the guy up. I mean, there are so many other ways that he could have solved this. No, I'm going to frame him for being the Zodiac Killer. I think that that one's a little bit beyond belief. So, I mean, that kind of dispels the uh, question slash comment that was left by Morphier. But I do thank Michael Morford for uh, writing in those uh, challenges to Drew Beeson and Thomas Henry Horne. They'll be used on the Professor Dad show. And going on to the next comment, this one comes to us from Classic Chevy Cat that was put out on the episode of the Manson Zodiac Connection that came out last Monday. It was the um, anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders. Really, it came out on the date of the anniversary of the LaBianca murders, but Classic Chevy Cat has something to say here. Ned, I made an interesting discovery. Tom Voigt probably already knows about this, but I didn't. I collect old yearbooks. was just looking through Vallejo Senior High, High School on from 1965 on page 77, and guess what I see? The spring play that year was The Mikado. I have chills. Never knew Vallejo had put on The Mikado. And I was like, wow. But then, do you think that the Zodiac Killer would have been a high school student then? That would lower his age to about 19 to 22 at the time of the murders if he was a high schooler back in 1965, and um, Classic Chevy Cat responded by saying, Now I'm rethinking everything. Could have been an older family member who went to the play, an older brother maybe. And then Tom Voigt wanted to weigh in on this one, actually. And Tom Voigt responded by saying, The Mikado was a staple back then at both high schools and colleges, kind of like crew cuts and dark-rimmed glasses. And yes, there are numerous productions of the Mikado going on, but if anything, that goes to show you that it's a very popular play. Crew Cuts and Dark Rim Glasses, absolutely those were popular. Two-thirds of the Zodiac suspects out there have a, have a photo of them somewhere with Crew Cuts and Dark Rim Glasses. But about the Mikado, uh, maybe there is something here about uh, classic Chevy Cat's comment, because the Zodiac did reference the, the Mikado frequently, and it's very specific references that almost certainly only came from the Mikado, unless it's something like a Mikado parody. There's just been uh, there's been some talk about how it's actually Groucho Marx doing a parody of the Mikado and so on. But I digress from that, and I mentioned that um, that episode, the Manson Zodiac Connection, came out on the anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders. And in that episode, I frequently cite the Tate-LaBianca radio program, which is hosted by Brian Davis and Tana Laufenberg. And I was really curious if Brian Davis was going to do an anniversary episode, because um, Sunday was August 8th, the night of the Sharon Tate murders, as we refer to them as. Of course, uh, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frakowski, and Stephen Parent were also murdered that night. Rest in peace to them. And I wanted to see what he was going to do, but instead he just put up a message saying that his show was canceled. And he was being very honest. He said, hey, I forgot that it was the anniversary of these crimes, but... um." I'm, because I don't have anything specific planned, I'm going to use this as a day of actual mourning where the victims can finally just rest in peace. We spend all of our time talking about them, 
let's just give the victims a day in which they can truly rest in peace. Something to that effect, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but I was like, wow, that's so much better than what I did. And this goes to show you, I'm not right all the time. I definitely can rethink things when I learn something new from other people, and maybe that is a better way to go about it instead of doing an episode where I talk about some wild theories on that are involved with these cases. Maybe just do that on certain anniversary dates. Just give the victims a true day of resting in peace. But speaking of anniversaries and tributes, prior to me reading that post from Brian Davis, I did a memorial tribute update post for the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, which occurred um, on August 9th of 2013. Brandon Lawson went missing after his truck ran out of gas while driving on a highway in Texas, driving uh, from San Angelo, heading toward Abilene, Texas. But um, what uh, happened to Brandon Lawson we still do not know, and it became a very popular case on the internet because of a 911 call that Brandon made, but people can't determine what he is saying. But Kathleen Patricia has a theory in the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, and she says alien abduction, perhaps? And then there's a shrugging emoji. I haven't heard the alien theories too much in the Brandon Lawson disappearance, and I personally do not believe them. I'm being 100% clear. I don't, um... I'm not a big UFO believer. I definitely try to find out what people are actually experiencing because with certain UFO stories, you can definitely tell that some people have experienced something. They've seen something in the sky or they had this type of out-of-this-world experience. And I wanted to find out, well, what's actually going on? If it's not the um, UFOs, then what is it? Of course, with the skeptic card, you can always say, I will accept it if I have the proof. But... I haven't really heard too much of that in the disappearance of Brandon Lawson instead, and I'm fully aware that Kathleen Patricia is probably saying this facetiously, but with the disappearance of Brandon Swanson, someone who has a similar name, I've heard the UFO theory pushed around a lot more because Brandon Swanson was on the phone when he quote-unquote disappeared and vanished, and that was discussed a little bit more. But no, I'm not a big UFO believer. I mean, people are still putting out all kinds of theories about Brandon Lawson, that he was murdered by the police, or that he was murdered by someone who had a connection to the police, or that he accidentally died and he drowned in a river, or that um, he ran away to start a new life. It really is an enormous mystery. But the reason why I don't talk about the disappearance of Brandon Lawson too frequently anymore is... I've said everything I had to say about it, and I don't want to just start speculating in random directions because I got into trouble with that case, and I kept saying things that were not true, and then I had to backtrack and apologize. But maybe once a year I do something about the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, and I mean, maybe we can do these memorials and tributes beforehand and a couple days before or a week before. But right now I would like to go on to some of the comments that you guys have left on the Long Island Serial Killer episodes. And first we have one from Super Strike 9 about the death of Shannon Gilbert. And just to say uh, an introductory statement, Shannon Gilbert is the woman who was visiting a client of hers named Joe Brewer. She was working as an escort advertising on the internet, and she had some type of either traumatic incident happen to her, or maybe she had a manic episode and she became mentally unstable or just 
absolutely erratic and they tried to calm her down they couldn't do it and the client is trying to get the driver to get her out of his house and she's just not willing to cooperate but eventually she leaves she's running up and down oak beach pounding on people's doors multiple people called 911 shannon herself had a 23 minute 911 call and then she disappeared and more than a year later her remains were discovered in a marshy area near um, Oak Beach, near Gilgo Beach on Long Island. Super Strike 9 says, I think there's a good chance Shannon Gilbert's death isn't related to the Long Island serial killer. If I had to decide if her death was related or not, I agree with you, Ned, that she wasn't killed by the Long Island serial killer. There just seems to be so many points that are drifting away from the Long Island serial killer. Now, what seems to be more and more possible, the more I read about Shannon Gilbert is, was she the victim of foul play? More and more possible. And even if, say, somebody in the vicinity was trying to calm her down some way, somehow, and they accidentally injured her even more, well, that would still be something illegal. We're talking culpable homicide, criminally negligent homicide, maybe even involuntary manslaughter. It seems like something of that nature could be much more likely. And a prime suspect in the murder, manslaughter, culpable homicide, criminally negligent homicide of Shannon Gilbert is Dr. Peter Hackett, somebody who lived nearby Joe Brewer. Remember, Joe Brewer is the client who wanted to see Shannon as an escort. Dr. Peter Hackett was not there at the beginning from what we gather, I mean, from what I can gather reading things on the internet and now let's look here um, at a comment from Tina L who says from what I understand Dr. Hackett is the person who came up with the Shannon drowned theory but I think if Shannon died of anything besides murder that morning then she died of some combination of injury her driver testified that he heard Shannon fall down the stairs at Brewer's house and he heard a very loud thud and maybe other mental conditions related to panic maybe and it um another thing that was uh, shared is that Shannon uh, did not have any drugs in her system at the time. That was something that was noted on the autopsy. And also her mother seems to be very adamant that she did not use drugs. Her driver, Michael Pack, says that she did use ecstasy and marijuana. But um, was she high on anything at the time? I mean, I, what exactly would that lead to? Heart failure? I mean... I, I just think that we don't have enough information to say definitively what could have caused that, but for a long time, people seem to have thought that Shannon died of a cocaine overdose, and they even they even allude to this in the movie Lost Girls, which is about the victims of the Long Island serial killer, and if you do tune into that series, it's an ongoing series on this channel, there are just so many, so many cases that are connected to it, um, but there's also one from Studio Stuff that I would like to read off. Now, the more I read, the more questions I have. I did read this one off in the um, last episode. That's just why I wanted to clarify. I read Shannon's autopsy, and it said that there was no drowning, no drugs detected, true or not, question mark. If true, how did she die? She was sitting in a marsh at 70 degrees, and that doesn't kill you. Now, I am not a medical examiner. I'm not a forensic scientist. But what I have read following true crime cases is with drugs like ecstasy, or any other type of party drug, I mean, or any other one of these ecstasy variants, whether it's GHB or something, these ones are 
only detectable if they perform certain tests to look for them that a standard autopsy is not going to reveal the presence of certain types of party drugs. Now, because she had been under the influence of something like that, and that, once again, led to some type of irregular condition. Or there's also the possibility that Dr. Peter Hackett was called over because he is just that, a doctor, and that he administered a sedative to um, Shannon. Uh, well, let's just read uh, Studio Steph's comment here. The doctor called the mother before the missing announcement and soon after to say that she had been his, at his house and that she had been given a sedative and that Shannon gave him her mother's number. If Shannon ran off to the marsh, how did he know this then? Too strange. Then what happened to her after the sedative? True or not? Question mark. Then there's the weird cop that goes to such parties in that neighborhood with the doctor and gets rough with women and flipped out over a duffel bag of sex toys. I'm assuming that it was his bag. I haven't gotten to the other victims. All right, so I think you can see where some people have their theories. And the um, Gilbert family did file a lawsuit against Peter Hackett to um, accusing him of negligent behavior because he had administered the sedative to Shannon. However, the lawsuit was dismissed because simply they were not able to prove that he ever actually administered a sedative to Shannon Gilbert, but I think you can see the narrative. Some guy named Joe Brewer gets Shannon over to his house. He starts, um, well, he attempts to uh, hire an escort, but then something happens, whether he doesn't like Shannon's appearance and then she has an absolute meltdown or she has some type of drug in her system or just she's really on edge because of something else and she has either a panic attack or an emotional breakdown and they can't control her, so what do they do? Are they going to call 911 and say, hey, I just tried to get a prostitute, and now she's uh, misbehaving. Can you please help me? Well, I mean, they're not going to do that at first, but they did talk to 911, and instead, they can call the doctor who lives very close by and see if he can do something. What would he do? He would administer a sedative, as well as something that I have to insist whether it's the death of Shannon Gill or the death of any of the other Long Island serial killer victims, the confirmed victims, that is. It appears that this area of Long Island is a very affluent community with very wealthy residents, and what do wealthy residents do? They spend money on things like drugs, sex workers, and everything illegal under the sun because they're rich and they can get away with it. So it also appears that it appears that this probably wouldn't be foreign territory for somebody like Dr. Peter Hackett. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. And the next comment comes to us from Jason Anderson, who has one on the Long Island serial killer, the murder of Jessica Taylor. Jessica Taylor was another victim of the Long Island serial killer, but unlike Shannon Gilbert, she is listed as a confirmed victim. Although, unlike the Gilgo Four, the women that were placed into burlap sacks and buried on Gilgo Beach... Shannon, uh, sorry, uh, Jessica Taylor was dismembered and her remains were more or less scattered. Her uh, torso was found in one place and then her hands and skull were found in another place and years apart before they made the discovery. Jessica Taylor's uh, tattoo of um, angel wings was also mutilated. And um, Jason Anderson says, my suspect for this case is James Bissett. James Bissett was the man who owned a plant nursery, and he committed suicide two days after they discovered Shannon Gilbert's remains. The plant nursery was also the main supplier of burlap in the area. 
Now, if that doesn't make your blood turn cold, I don't know what will. They've already found four women buried in burlap sacks. They discover another woman found dead in the marsh. Two days later, this guy commits suicide, and he's the main supplier of burlap in the area. Well, I, um, the only thing is, as I've said before, I think that he would have a connection to the death of Shannon Gilbert if this were all interconnected, but I don't believe that she was a Long Island serial killer victim. I mean, it's still possible. She is listed as an unconfirmed victim. I'm leaning one way, but I don't know 100%. And just to share um, some other things that are like announcements on this channel, with the Long Island serial killer mystery, I was talking about two of the Jane Doe's that are unconfirmed LISK victims, and their names are Peaches Jane Doe and Cherry's Jane Doe, and I'm hoping to do an episode about them on Friday. I'm going to see if I can compile enough information on them to do one, a whole episode dedicated to those two um, women. But we'll just um, see where it goes and see if um, that is going to be the case. But I'm definitely continuing with the Long Island serial killer case. And also, this Thursday, that's going to be tomorrow, to anyone who's listening to these live, I will be doing the next episode in a series on the disappearance of Donald Lass. And please tune into that one, because that is going to be the biggest episode yet. I don't mean in terms of length, but just in, in terms of getting to the heart of the matter with Donald Lass. Um, but it's going to be an ongoing series. With the uh, Disappearance of Donna last series, I wanted to do it every Thursday for as long as I can to just see what we can uncover, see what is out there, see what sources are available to the general public, and maybe it'll be a couple more weeks, maybe a couple more months. I don't have any expectation on the time limits for that one, but I think it'll be very... It's time to get back to that mystery and there are a lot of things to go through on Thursday. Now at this time, now I would like to go to an episode that I did once talking about mental health and so on, and it's called How to Deal with Anxiety, Bad Memories, and Post-Traumatic Stress. And there are two reasons why I want to talk about this one. The first is, somebody left a comment that I thought was pretty good that I didn't get to last time, and that was dealing with weightlifting as a way to combat anxiety, and saying the best remedy for anxiety is to lift weights. I absolutely agree with this, because when I was, I guess I would have been 22 at the time, it was right after college, and I moved into my cousin's house for a while, and he just had this weight set, workout equipment, some other things, and I started using it regularly, like five days a week, and I found that it was one of the few times that I could concentrate, like just lifting weights and counting the repetitions. Now, this is going to sound really creepy, but I saw this one serial killer interview once, I think it was the John Hughes interview, when he says, every second there is a hundred thoughts in my brain going at once. And that, that I could definitely resonate with that, even though I'm not a serial killer, I've never killed anyone, I have no plan to, never will. But, like, I always felt like my brain was just going at a hundred miles an hour all the time, or just one idea is going to the next so quickly there's no focus there's no concentration but when I started weightlifting I really found like wow like I just feel so focused on this or any type of exercise where you would count the repetitions especially if you're doing it regularly even part of me was like I want to go back to school and get a physiology degree yeah I didn't do that but let me go in and out of exercise and so on but 
it was just it really does provide a level of mental clarity. So um, I would love to give that person a shout out, but I think that comment was deleted. But now I would like to um, look at some comments that were left by Albert Forel, and because I did a mental uh, awareness episode, he says, I'm a licensed psychologist and currently working with therapy. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have about how and why therapy is supposed to work. And there is something that um, I wanted to ask him genuinely, because as you guys know, I am not a psychologist, I am not a therapist, Absolutely not. I mean, I was admitted to a program in psychology once, but I didn't go. So it's nice to uh, check with a professional like Albert here. And I threw out a question to him. And I said, Hi, Albert. Thanks for the response. One thing I'd love to hear your take on is, I have somewhat of a controversial standpoint. Therapy is mostly about surrender. The patient has to surrender control of their emotions to the therapist allowing someone to control their emotions and or thought process. Psychiatry is about dominance and submission. Before someone can improve their well-being, the psychiatrist must gain control over a person, i.e. putting them in a place where they cannot do physical harm to themselves or others. First dominance, then they can work on well-being later. Feel free to disagree. And I do think that that is something that is not very well... Um, well, it's not very widely accepted. In fact, it's something that I just noticed that people were doing or that people were, um, the way that people were going about this practice, that therapy was about surrender and psychiatry just seemed about dominance and submission. And I don't even need to bring up some guy like Donald Ewan Cameron or even some of these other people like Dr. Jolly West and so on. But it just seems like it's not even about well-being. It's like before someone can try to help improve your well-being, this person just has to control you. And Albert Forel responded to my comments there by saying, Well, yes, you don't choose your feelings nor thoughts, only your actions. It's like trying to deny your bank account balance. Wishing things were different or looking the other way doesn't help. You have to accept what's inside of you. You have to put your feet on the ground, taking reality for what it is, and usually, number one, working on accepting your fears. And number two, seeing what you can do. It's not pleasant, but it's your best choice. It takes energy that you have to, and will, it, it takes energy that you have, and you have to be willing to pay to make progress. But if there is someone in a state where harming themselves is an option, it is usually hard to find that energy. Sometimes medication can help stabilize the patient to a point where they have small, meaningful goals in the right direction, and then it can a new direction can be taken. Accepting what you feel usually takes the edge off instead of running from it, which makes it grow. Just allow yourself to say, yes, I fear X is a great leap from more instinctive behaviors like trying to calculate everything that can go wrong and other things that only sort of soothe it for the short term at best. And then you can apply behavior analysis to see what behaviors only reinforce the anxiety long term and see what other more productive steps can be taken towards goals. And then what What would you do if you didn't have anxiety? It's a good question to ask. But focus on what should be on the behavior, if possible, and don't listen to the anxiety for an example. So um, Albert also says, acceptance is not surrender nor resignation. It's a linguistic misunderstanding. It's about facing reality to see what can be done. And then um, the final point that Albert shares in a different comment is, 
Alternative ways of improving your mental health, like starting a diet, workout, and meditation, and so on, can of course be goals in CBT. That must mean cognitive behavioral therapy. A big thank you to Albert Forrell for uh, sharing all this here as a professional psychologist. And I talked about that channel, um, Barehanded Enterprises, at the beginning. And um, a lot of that stuff is life coaching. And the host of that one, Bulent Gherkin, said something that I thought was a little bit different when he was like, life coaching is about the present. Psychology is about the past. And he would go on to share some things down the pathway of psychology is about um, dealing with traumatic experiences that you've had in the past that have affected your personality in a negative way. Life coaching is about altering your uh, actions in the present to achieve something. And even to the extreme point of psychology would be like going to see a psychologist or a therapist would be if you want to um, fix something, but you don't know what is wrong. Whereas if you know what you want and you know exactly how to fix your problem, but you just need someone to help you along the way, then you would go to a life coach. Like if you want to get into a relationship or if you want to lose weight or if you want to make better choices that will help your career, then you would go to a life coach. That was, I think, the um, thesis of that video. Now, I talked with somebody once. I don't even know his name. just had a conversation with a guy who was a mental health professional who was absolutely not about this or that, not about the false dichotomy or the black and white fallacy. And every time I brought up something like that, that, well, psychology is not about this. It's actually about that. He's like, no, it can be. Psychology is not about the present. It's about the past. And he would have probably said, oh, no, it is because a psychologist is supposed to help people with coping mechanisms about how to deal with stress, about how to deal with things like anxiety attacks. And what do they do? Psychology is very much about the present, and that that statement as well that psychology is about something that you uh, like. It's, it's it's the person that you would turn to, the psychologist or the therapist, if you don't know what's wrong, and then you turn to a life coach if you do know what is what you want. He would have refuted that as well, and I mean he did this during our conversation in a different way by saying, "Well, there are lots of psychologists out there, and not all of them." Are the same. There are lots of therapists out there, and they're not all the same. You can find a relationship counselor who is going to focus on a certain aspect of life, and it might even be covered by insurance. It's a very vast field. Like if you want to improve your relationships, you can also find a health psychologist if you want to improve your overall health well-being. I mean, these people exist. It's um so it's definitely not black and white. These are just different perspectives. I don't think either one is wrong. I mean, I think they're just valuable in different ways. But on that note, I would like to conclude this um se segment by talking about something that is just a little bit more random, and that is assertiveness training. And I'm just going to share some things with you guys that I have found to be very helpful because I was very frustrated when I was watching the psychologist Jordan Peterson talk about assertiveness training. And he's like, well, if you're too agreeable, then why don't you try saying no sometime? And I was like, that's your brilliant expert psychological advice to people. Oh yeah, well, if you have a problem saying no, well, then why don't you try saying no? I'm like, that's just pathetic, to be honest. I never like it when people provide these, um, these, these um, solutions that are just the equivalent of, well, stop doing whatever it is that's giving you the problem, you don't always know how. Or a clear example with something like not being assertive enough is 
that if you're too agreeable and you're not assertive, when something happens that you haven't anticipated, you just go blank and you go along with whatever the other person wants you to, to do. You're too agreeable and such. So I really have been compiling a list of things that I've heard from other people in other sources that I think are a little bit more valuable than just try saying no, because I'm the most agreeable person on the planet. I've always been somebody who has had a big problem with that. And the first one, I think, is, though, to recognize that other people want power, and they're going to be trying to fight for it. And even if everything seems all warm and cozy with people, they might be trying to take advantage of you. It doesn't mean they're doing it all the time, but the possibility could exist. And even though I was very harsh on Jordan Peterson, he is the person who said that, I mean, not his original idea, but he's the one who talks about it a lot, that a group sorts itself out into a dominance hierarchy. If you have a group of big people, then there's going to be a leader, there's going to be a number two, and so on. So first, be aware of these different power levels. The second one is, here's something that you can actually try. Here's like an exercise you can actually do to become more assertive. I don't even remember where I heard it, but it said, think of a very assertive person that you know, someone who stands up for themselves or doesn't like to be told what to do, or someone who will push back when other people try to push them around and write down all of the qualities that they have, or even detail and experience that you remember when this person, whether it's a family member, a friend, or somebody that you know briefly, you've known briefly, write down everything that has happened in those experiences and study that. Use their behaviors as a model. Someone more assertive than you, use that as a model, a template, a blueprint, and look at the situations. Who was talking to them? How did they respond? And it's something that you can do to practice becoming more assertive. The next one is from Barehanded Enterprises, the channel that I was just talking about. The name of the host is Buland Gherkin, and he said something very interesting. It was actually in an interview that he did on another channel when he was talking about don't accept the result when you asked for a reason. And the example he was giving us, someone asks him, oh, he asked somebody, why? And they said, because I don't. And he's like, you're giving me the result when I ask for a reason. And to explain this in a little bit more detail, back when I was a teenager, I was working in a restaurant. And one of my other co-workers, who was just like me, we're just, you know, team members, co-workers. We're not like any, any, anything to do with the higher-ups. And my coworker was moving some boxes into the corner, and then the manager came over and said, "Hey, why are you putting in the why are you putting the boxes in that corner? Why don't you put them in that corner?" And my coworker just said, "Because I don't want to." And then the manager just kind of was stunned, shrugged, and walked away. And I I told uh, my coworker, "I like the way you handled that." And he's like, "Damn, what is he telling me that for?" Because he just talked back to the manager and shut him down. How did he do that? He gave the result when the manager asked for the reason. This is how people gain control in 
a conversation and a discussion and an argument, how they bypass challenges, they give the result instead of the reason. And because if he provides a reason for it, then the other person can debate him. So do not accept him when someone just says, because I don't want to, then you can be aware like, no, I asked you, why are you doing that? And then just it's something to be aware of and to keep practicing. And already, I mean, I found that that has allowed me to understand conversations much more clearly. When someone refuses, do not just let them walk away. Keep pressing them for the reason. And it's not because I said so, not just because I don't want to, not just because I don't need to tell you. You can keep demanding the reason and not accept the result. So I'm just always a fan of these types of mental exercises when someone actually gives you something that you can put into action. Like I was watching this one uh, video once about how to get over bad memories and the guy's like, well, why don't you try thinking about something else? I was like, that's the whole point. People who are dealing with post-traumatic stress can't just snap their fingers and start thinking about something else. The same way that people who aren't very assertive can't just snap their fingers and start saying no all the time. So I just wanted to share some things that I've been trying recently, and I think that it's stuff worth repeating. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and if anybody would like to contact the show, they can do it at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. Anybody can follow the show on Facebook, or you can get my personal Facebook in the description box there. And feel free to look at some of the other links. And as always, there is the Instagram page, blackboxnet88 on Instagram. And I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.